Hello! Welcome to Film is Lit. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert. Next to me is Laura. Laura? I'm the book expert. That's right. How you doing this evening? Well, I gotta be honest, I just woke up from a nap that felt like it lasted 200 years. Power naps. I'm so tired. I think I only slept for a half hour, but yep. I literally thought it was three. I thought we had just completely blown past the episode and it was time for bed. Remember, you don't start drinking white wine until 30 minutes before we record. Because I... if you do it an hour before, you're out. You're out, dude. <laughs> it's true. It knocked me out. Yeah. This, this is a lesson that we all learned. But she's back. She's back at it, refreshed. Well, should be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I... And you I'm have drinking a, water. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Hydrate, please. And I see you have a tome of notes. I do. Yes. Interestingly enough, I take analog notes with paper and pen, what? and Danny takes notes on his laptop, which I think is so interesting. Digital it kind of, baby. It matches our interests. The new so age. Hopped into the mainframe. I'm in. Right. Just, just then. What yeah. mainframe? mainframe? No, I was a trope, movie trope of. <laughs> tapping on but yeah i'm all okay I'm all ahead. digital because i uh don't like writing it hurts my hand it's, it's why <laughs> and don't have the best uh, penmanship but um yeah I, I just take everything all my notes on on my phone while i'm watching the movie and uh, i should mention that i am a strict advocate for no phone use during watching the movie but for this podcast we're usually watching movies that we have already seen and I'm taking notes for a thing. But if we ever invite a guest over to our place and we watch a movie, phones, uh, I'm that guy. I'll yep. admit it. Leave the phone at the door. Put That's it on said. silent. What, what am I getting at today? Oh yeah, we're reviewing one of the classic films ever made. A classic classic based off mm -hmm. Ken Kesey's novel of the same name. That's right, we're talking about One, one Flew, Flew over, over the, the Cuckoo's, Cuckoo's Nest. Nest. Yeah, the film, directed by Milos Forman, released in 1975. Yeah, one of the classics. This is on seemingly every critic's top ten list it, across the board. You always see this film. It joins the likes of The Godfather and E.T., Raiders of the Lost Ark, all Spielberg films, but let's n name some other ones. Uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey, like classic, classic films that mm -hmm. are universally beloved for good reason yeah and same with the book as well it's right. on a lot of top favorite lists but interestingly enough i only read this book for the first time last year and it was only because you wanted to watch the movie i think you yeah. wanted to show me the movie and i said don't show it to me until i've read the book so i actually went out of my way to buy this book which is pretty unusual normally i just go to thrift stores and buy the entire shelf that they have uh -huh. <laughs> and i kind of read books in the order in which i buy them but i went out of my way to a secondhand store a secondhand bookstore in santa monica shout out remember, to monster books oh monster books remember secondhand stores oh remember that don't tease me. No, I'm not teasing. I'm going I'm, I'm trying. I know. I'm getting nostalgic, and it's. I don't think those are going to be a thing anymore. Oh, secondhand please, stores. Come back, please. Uh, well, we'll see. So anyway, so I 
bought this book secondhand, but I went out of my way to buy it. I read it, watched the movie, loved both. Now I've watched the movie twice and I've read the book three times. So yes, you could say I enjoy this story. Well, this for watching it, this movie for a podcast, this was the third time mm -hmm. I had seen it. I had to watch it for the first time in film school mm -hmm. in screenwriting class. So I watched this. It's very appropriate for this podcast because mm -hmm. we were examining in that class how it was adapted and how certain lines were, were ripped straight from the text for the movie, but and how other things were changed or condensed, kind of learning how to condense. It was an exercise in condensing source material for mm -hmm. a screenwriting class. But yeah, seeing the movie three times, and hey, here's a, I have a little surprise for you. The past three days, yeah, you ready for this? Were you listening to this? I listened to the audio book. You read the book? Uh, yep, I you listened. Surprised which surprised Yep, a little surprise, yeah. I, oh my goodness. I used one of my Audible what credits. <laughs> and this podcast is sponsored by Audible. Not yet, but... If only. Oh, hopefully this plug will... Make, yeah, listen to an Audible narrated by John C. Riley. Oh, yeah, which is which is interesting because I know you listened to it on your second. So, I was actually gonna say I don't use Audible because I don't like paying for things. Got it. I use the app Libby. Shout out to the library app if anybody's interested because all you have to do is link your library card to this app and you have access to literally millions of digital books, audiobooks, magazines anything that you want that you can source through the library you have access to just so, to clarify it's called the library app or no, is it's it called, called libby? libby okay it's called libby you said like okay got it i'm saying the library app yeah. libby got it thanks so i highly suggest downloading this app every single person i talk to i tell about libby and so the person that i listen to read the book is called grover gardner and I happen to really like his voice. Yeah, he I think also. He's a great, I think he's a great narrator. He also narrated "Oil," which by Upton Sinclair, which I mm -hmm. listened to as well, based on that a movie that we're also going to cover on this podcast is based off that book. I'm not going to say which one, but you can probably guess from the title: "Oil, Oil, Oil." Okay, yeah. So that was that little surprise I had for you. I'm now well versed. In both the book and the movie, so this should be a theoretically uh, fruitful discussion. So, all right. So, Laura, why don't you give some background to the book, and then give me your uh, opening initial thoughts on the piece. Sure. So, the book came out in 1962, and it was written, like we mentioned, by Ken Kesey. It was his first novel, and from what I could figure out from Googling around a little bit, Ken Kesey was, slash is, considered a counterculturalist. So he was sort of following in the footsteps of people like Allen Ginsberg and the Beat Poets. And I think that's really clear by the content and the storyline of the novel. You know, it's very stick it to the man. It's very, very visual in that respect, how, you know, in the end, Chief smashes the window in order to escape yeah. and the hospital is very obviously representing society and how 
society wants to mainstream everybody's minds into thinking the same thing and in order to overcome this you have to break the illusion of all of those ideas that you've been fed by society so i think that this is a very 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 symbolic novel yeah. and even though i agree with a lot of the ideas i also think it's maybe a little bit heavy-handed <laughs> with yeah. all the symbolism but sure. i also i i like it because i agree with what it's saying to a certain extent and i also think that i enjoyed it because it really reminds me of shutter island and it asks a lot of the same questions about how to treat people with mental illnesses and people with depression and sort of how to treat people as individuals rather than groups of people and predefining people and deciding how that affects how you treat them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's kind of my overall impression. Yeah, and would you say that the film is a faithful adaptation of the source material? Yeah, I agree. And there are a couple key things that I think the film changed, which bother me a little bit. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I really enjoy Jack Nicholson's portrayal of McMurphy. We've talked about this before, but one of the things that we really look for in a good adaptation is obviously visual cues mm -hmm. that are, can't necessarily be perfectly represented straight from the text mm -hmm. on a page. And that's something that really brings the story alive, is McMurphy. So I really enjoy the movie, and I don't think it strays a lot from what the book is saying. So, you know, when I hear that Ken Kesey wasn't happy with the movie, it kind of surprises me. Right. And from what I could tell in the research is that he really could not handle the change of focus the the narrator essentially yes so this is the biggest change between the novel and the movie both novel and the movie are very similar but this one change distinctly separates the two pieces yes so the novel is told from chief bromden's perspective we're inside his mind the whole time yeah and i think this is really interesting that you read the book this time because it is a pretty major change i don't think it necessarily changes the entire message of the novel, but I do think it changes it in a key way that is really unfortunate and I think probably manifested because of the time that it, the movie was made. Sure. Whereas if it were made now, it probably would have been fine to have a Native American lead actor having maybe a voiceover. So it's really unfortunate that that change couldn't have been more forward-looking. Right. Yeah, for when a movie was made. For a movie that's so forward-looking and so rebellious. Yeah, and I, I think that that is fair. Uh, I guess if you consider it from that perspective, I understand where Ken Kesey would be really unhappy with that change. Especially because if you come at it from that perspective, I understand why Ken Kesey would be really upset with that change. Yeah, I mean, he he is also, Ken Kesey is quoted with saying that he came across the movie one day and was yeah, watching about this. 10 minutes of it, and it was like, this is a great movie. And then he didn't re he only realized until they said one of his character's names, that he's like, oh, this is my, bu my book. Right, so, and then you changed the channel. That was the f sort of... Yeah, the legend. Who legend. knows if it's right. true, but... I do think that the producers of this film, they were kind of at 
at a crossroads of saying that they wanted this film to become mainstream, which it was. It's one of the highest grossing films of that year. It grossed $109 million, which in 1975, wow, that is like a boatload. Yeah, that is like the movie of uh, of the year. Well, third highest grossing of that uh, year. I was going to say, was Rocky Horror Picture Show number one? Yeah, probably. No, no, actually, no, that was a cult movie. That I No, I know. I just love that movie, and I knew it was, came out in 1975. Right, but they had wanted someone like Burt Reynolds to be McMurphy, but mm. they decided to go with a more critically friendly actor in Jack Nicholson who that time had been nominated for two Oscars before this movie and mm. then this was the third third year in a row which he'd been nominated for an Oscar he finally won That's for crazy. best actor for this mm. one this movie also holds the distinction of when of being one of the few movies that has won the big five what's the big five you ask well that's <laughs> best screenplay best actor best actress Best Director, and Best Picture. Wow. And in history, only three films, including uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, have won the Big Five. Those other two movies being It Happened One Night in 1934 and Silence of the Lambs, another one of my favorites, mm -hmm. uh, in, in 1991. So uh, One Flew Over, Over the Cuckoo's Nest was the second film to win the Big Five, and, and yeah is in that distinct class. Well, it's interesting... Sorry, were you done with what you were going to yep. say? So, it's interesting that they made the choice to replace Chief Bromden's first-person point of view with something more, quote-unquote, universal, because they mm -hmm. wanted the movie to be really, really successful by being popular. I think... Number one, that would probably bother Ken Kesey being a counterculturalist. Yeah, That's oh, probably absolutely. exactly what he didn't want to say with the book. But... It's really important to note that that takes away how special Chief Bromden is in the novel because he's the focal point and him as a character, I do really miss in the movie. Right. You know, he is, we hear a lot about his childhood and about how his reservation was taken over and his father at one point had been the leader of, their, of his reservation and he had to sell the reservation's rights to the state in order for the dam to be built. And so we get a lot of background about Brown and we found out that he was in the war and it was really only on my third reading of the novel that I put together that Chief Bromden is probably in the hospital due to PTSD. Yeah. And that informs a lot of what goes on in his mental state. We find out, obviously, that he has been treated with shock therapy, EST. And we see that there are a few times in the novel where we directly experience the effects of what that does to his brain because it's in first person. He gets really erratic. His his thoughts, yeah, his thoughts get, his really, thoughts erratic. get really erratic. And you're and the first and really disconnected from reality. Like he talks about the fog that he sort of he can't quite tell, or excuse me, the reader can't tell exactly what's going on. What's real? Is there real fog? Is there something that he's seeing, or is it just his? mind that's been affected and so 
again, to sort of complete my thought, I think it's a real shame that we don't see that the special person in the book is Bromden. And he's the one who we need to specifically focus on when we think about him overcoming the Combine, which is basically the sort of the symbol through the book for society. And then if you look at the movie, it's supposed to represent all of us, you know, and Chief Bromden becomes less special. It just becomes, he sort of becomes the symbol of all of us uh-huh. breaking free. And I think that's a real loss because even though Ken Kesey is white and he's probably not the best person to be writing from a Native American perspective, it does show that there is something different about his experience rather than sort of whitewashing the fact that like, oh, Native American experiences are the same as white experiences. And like, we all have to break free from this cage of society's rules. Like, that's a little bit of a loss. I think that's, it's a pretty significant loss to just sort of gloss over that and say, no, we all have the same experiences and we all have to break free from the same shitty situations. Like, yeah, that's that's kind of a big deal to make it more commercial. <laughs> right, which is why that I would recommend that if you're going to watch both the movie and read the book, I would actually recommend reading the book after seeing the movie because it's kind of a, a supplementary. It has that additional element to it, which I really was taken with the second time. Of, of The movie, like you're saying, doesn't have that that Native American backstory. And and this backstory enforces the theme that Ken Kesey's writing about of, you know, society's enforcement of conformism. So mm-hmm. Chief Bromden was talking about his past and with his father and how these people, white people, <laughs> were basically forcing him to s- sell his land and, you know, to conform, so to speak, to their vision of what they wanted for the town right. to um, gentrify the reservation. And, and they're, they're just slamming him with, with checks, you know. Well, checks, that sounds like a good thing to have so many. But, but what Ken Kesey is getting at is, like, no amount of money, no amount of talk is worth completely changing your identity like well, that, that. Yeah, he says that specifically. There are a few quotes where... Chief Bromden's father gives him the advice of not giving up his identity. Mm-hmm. And then it's really, really sad, this one line that just breaks my heart that is in the movie, but it's kind of a throwaway line, which I think is so sad. It really doesn't get the punch that you get from the book. But Chief, is t- uh, Chief Bromden talks about his father and how he becomes an alcoholic after the reservation is sold. And he says that his father, every time he would lift a bottle to his lips, the bottle would suck more from him than he would suck from the bottle. Yeah. And it's such a pivotal line in the book. And in the movie, it's just sort of said as an offhand throwaway comment. Mm -hmm. That is kind of the biggest moment where you see that Bromden's identity and his background isn't important in the movie right. and that's kind of sad to me i yeah. think you lose a lot in the movie from that yeah and in the book he explained how you know his father became an alcoholic from kind of the trauma from selling his land basically being forced to sell his land and after he was actually he refused 
the money at first and he was beaten up mm-hmm. for it that was kind of a you know a predictable part of like yeah that, that would happen to um, a, a minority when they're uh pressed to sell their land if they don't if they don't play ball mm-hmm. then they're going to be forced out which it historically has been true for mm-hmm. native americans in the united states and yeah it adds to ken kesey's message of society can press on you and tell you what to do and you can resist but if you actively say no and deny this reality then they can reality can literally beat the shit out of you until you have no choice but to submit and so that that's an extra element of the book that you know i just think for time they couldn't really fit into the movie and also like nick murphy's the main character in the movie as opposed to well Right, and I think it's funny, now that you've read the book, I think I can really talk about how much racial tension there is in the book. Yes. Between not only Native American, the Native American backstory, and the white people who come in and influence Chief Bromden's life, but also the black characters are really, really set against the patients. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we really lose in the movie, too, which is interesting and it's funny that this movie even though i like it a lot i think it's funny that the focus was turned on to this white guy who becomes the oppressed mm-hmm. when in the book i think and again this all comes with sort of the caveat that it was written by a white person mm-hmm. a white man but he is asking a lot of questions about how are the racial ethnicities sort of set against each other to make it easier for the nurse slash the combine, which is, again, a metaphor for society. How do they set the races against each other to make it easier to sort of oppress them? Mm -hmm. And then the movie comes in and sort of serves you this whitewashed version where McMurphy is the one who's oppressed and it's like well he did rape someone and he did go to jail for fighting and all of these things like he got himself there and Chief Bromden only got himself there I think even in the book it's mentioned that he is literally one of the only involuntary patients because of clerical error yeah so he he like was there as an acute which meant that he could be, he had the hope of being released at some point, but due to a clerical error, he's been stuck there for a really long time. Oh. And he's become a chronic because gotcha. people just think that he's deaf. And oh, mute. sorry, Bromden. I thought you were talking about uh, McMurphy. No. All right, continue. So, so, like I said, so in the book, he's sort of been stuck there due to a, cl- a clerical error when. In reality, he clearly has a lot of PTSD. Like, there's a lot of stuff that's going on caused by his childhood and the ripping away of his identity and his experiences in World War II that potentially, at least in our time now, those things are very, very treatable. But because nobody was treating him like an individual and people were just assuming that he was deaf and mute, right? that... Yeah led to him just being sort of stuck there in limbo. Nobody was interested in reaching out to him or even figuring out that he could talk and he could hear. And 
instead of shock therapy and abuse, basically, if someone had just talked to him and tried to reach out to him as an individual, he might have been able to get cured and then go back to his regular life. Yeah, there are multiple times in the novel when he admits that he he wishes he could speak, but it's too late. He's played this role for too long that he's now, he's in too deep, essentially. And yeah, going back to what you're talking about, about the um, black orderlies, I love the detail in the novel about how uh, Nurse Ratchet, the, the big nurse, mm -hmm. uh, as she's called mainly in the novel, about how she specifically picked these three um, black men. She she had a an audition process, basically, mm -hmm. and she rifled through all these different candidates, but she, basically what Kenkisi was getting at was she picked the, the three men who were fierce enough to be to carry out her rule, but who were subservient enough right. to follow her own orders. And not question them. Or to not question right. them. So she, so Nurse Ratchet is literally, the, Nurse Ratchet, the representation of this, of the authority figure, the parental figure, is taking advantage of minorities to, to yeah. carry out her rule. So Yeah, exactly. Uh, but we've been, we've been talking a little bit, a little smack on the movie, but I wanted to get to that. Uh, Will Sampson, who plays Chief Bromden in the movie, a great stoic performance. He was, um, this was his first movie, he was a park ranger in Oregon where they were filming. Really? Yeah, and he was and he was selected in part because a scout had found him and told him to go audition for this role. Hmm. And he was picked because he was the only uh, Native American that the cast casting department could find who matched the character's incredible size. So that just kind of shows you what, I mean, even if the production wanted to make the main character Native American, it's just the, the scarcity of actors in this industry um, is so much that 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 probably wasn't even an option to, to begin with. Well, yeah, and I guess that just kind of makes me upset that right. oh, they yeah. weren't brave enough to actually sort of create a breakout role for someone that uh -huh. they literally had source material to give someone a really big role and they just sort of passed that over because I guess they had Jack Nicholson and whatever and I, I, I understand where the whole studio perspective comes in about wanting to make a movie commercial or uh -huh. whatever but like it's just so disappointing that that's the route they went with when they had a real opportunity to give a minority a great leading role right yeah i totally agree with you this is a, a side plug for a movie that just came out it's called blood quantum and it's about a, it's a movie that just came out it's on streaming now perfect time for it to be released with streaming now the big the go-to place for watching movies in quarantine. Um, it's about a zombie outbreak at a Native American reservation. So it stars all Native American actors. It's like the first like major movie to like really do that next to like Smoke Signals or or, or the HBO movie about um, the battle at Little Bighorn. There's, there's only a handful of movies mm. um, out there starring a full Native American cast, unfortunately. But getting back to that, even though that is a big disappointment, the reveal um, a little over midway th through the film that Chief Bromden can hear the whole time. Yeah, that's really uh, fun. Every time. Uh, you know, the first time I saw it, I was blown away. Didn't see that coming at all. But the, the, 
the next two times, I kind of I kind of forgot about it, and each time it like just knocks me on my ass. I'm like, wow! And I have the same reaction that uh, McMurphy has of just like, you fooled them all, yeah. you fooled them all, chief. Like it's such it, a great. It, it's such a great moment that it kind His of giggle. Yeah, it's so and it's great. It's perfect. And I'm not saying that it justifies the, the decision to make McMurphy the main character, but it is such an incredible reveal that I think doesn't make it okay. But it does lead to that great uh, reveal, that great storytelling device. So I, I liked, I like that part. Also, the entire cast. This is such a an ensemble movie, oh, and yeah. and director uh, Milos Forman. He wanted a star in the lead role, surrounded by a cast of unknown actors. That goes for mostly everyone, even Nurse Ratchet, played by um, Louise Fletcher. She hadn't acted. In, in anything really this was one of her first films as well but he wanted everyone to be unknowns except for McMurphy so that made him more McMurphy more like a natural leader like someone you gravitate to like they like do in the in the story mm -hmm. you, you just you, you get hypnotized totally. by by this guy's energy and Jack Nicholson I mean we continue to say this about him but he he is just so perfectly cast because he yeah. he his he represents just himself he he's just you just feel the an anarchy just emanating from him his character you know represents that rebellion against the system the you know the freedom self gratification all this stuff whereas nurse ratchet and louise fletcher as performance she represents the extreme the parental figure the authority you know at its right. extreme kind of almost almost fascist in its uh, enforcement of her ideals. Well, that's something I really enjoy watching in the movie because this book is so symbolic. Like, something I really wanted to focus on was the language of the mechanism that comes to represent the Combine, which is, you know, Nurse Ratched. There is just... I could not keep up in my notes with all of the language... I wanted to talk about the way that Ken Kesey talks about machinery, he talks about the tractor, the combine, manufacturing, installations he uses as the word to describe lobotomies and how they make people robots, some more language just right off the cuff, dials, whirring, hinge, precision, the buzz, mechanical puppets, the nurse station is described as a clock without its back so like you can see into the mechanism of what's making the schedule mm -hmm. move ahead and of course that language is sort of drilled into the reader as the novel because he wants to make it so visual but it's something that through the performances in the movie we see so clearly like nurse ratchet literally looks like a robot the entire movie she does not react she's entirely inert yeah and it's so enjoyable to watch such a hateful character and yeah. it makes her break at the end so satisfying right and then on the other hand like you're talking about with mcmurphy his performance or jack nicholson's performance you can see so clearly in the very beginning that he's so clearly trying to convince everybody that he's crazy he's literally observing the other patients and sort of mimicking what they're doing and sort of acting the way that he's 
been told or has come to understand that quote-unquote crazy people act and in the book it's kind of it's talked about but I love Jack Nicholson's performance because it's so clear through his actions and his face that he's just trying so hard to be considered quote-unquote crazy enough to be you know admitted and and stay there and stuff going back to jail yeah, the opening scene when he is led into the facility and he kisses the guard. Right. Like that that yeah. that was um an unscripted moment. Milo Schwarman told him to do it to get a genuine genuine reaction out of the the guard there. Yeah. The guard didn't know that Jack Nicholson That's was going to jump on him and kiss him. So the that adds to his character and I wrote when you're talking about Nurse Ratched's kind of blank demeanor her emotionless expression that's not to say that her performance is robotic it's very much the opposite right. she is supposed to act robotic and right. that makes you hate her even more that that adds to kind of her maybe maybe kind of implied uh sociopathic oh yeah behavior <laughs> i would say that she's definitely in need of some psychiatric <laughs> sure and i wrote this down in my notes too her hairstyle in the <gasps> Looks in the movie oh, looks like horns. horns. Yes, no way. I made the exact note. That's so funny because I only realized this on my second watch, but that is exactly what it looks like. No matter what way she turns, it literally looks like devil horns, and yeah. it's creepy as shit. <laughs> yeah, and something I wrote down after listening to the novel was how that the big change about how the, in the novel they keep on talking about the big nurse's nurse ratchet's big breasts this novel is so horny yeah it's, <laughs> it's so dang yeah. horny uh, that was the one word i wrote down and the movie completely kind of covers nurse ratchet the whole time yeah she becomes asexual yeah and she yeah it's just kind of she has you know assumed her sexuality and her humanity and just you know, streamlined straight into duty, into her righteousness. And she's you know, dressed in this quasi-military mm -hmm. nurse costume, you know, with her little hat and her horns. And she, you know, she's a warden, basically. Um, and she even... Well, she has the keys around her wrist all the time. Yeah, and, and she even has an unspeaking nurse to her side, like her little <laughs> acolyte the whole time. And whereas... Whereas McMurphy is very much her foil and is animated and expressive. Everything, everything that she is not. And so system, Nurse Ratchet is the system. McMurphy is the rebellion. And through McMurphy's rebellion, he brings out the kind of the joy and, and the life in a lot of his fellow inmates. But when your rebellion gets too extreme... That's when people, you know, can literally figuratively get hurt and, you know, die in a sense, both metaphorically. And then in this case, it, it, it led to a, a suicide. I, I didn't know, I was struck that in the book that, uh, you know, it ends like the same way the movie does with Bibbit's suicide. But I didn't. I didn't see coming that Cheswick also would die. Right in the book. Yeah. Right. Also, Cheswick dies, which is really sad. Yeah. It is a really tragic novel. It's a tragic story, even though in the end, Chief Bromden escapes, and that is really liberating. And of course, what the it kind of goes back to the title, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And in fact, that's actually an epigraph, which we skipped over a little bit when we were introducing the book. But the, the epigraph, which is an excerpt from a slightly longer children's full crime, 
the one flew east, one flew west, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. And the other thing that McMurphy also brings out of the patients that is sort of the crux of the whole message is that he brings out their individuality. And that is, I think, the thing that is so humanitarian about the novel and about the movie as well, about how as much as we see that McMurphy in the beginning of the novel, the first half, I would say, he's obviously just there to for his own gratification and for his own means. But as he takes the patients onto the fishing trip, he sort of makes this transition into this Jesus character. And he ultimately does sacrifice himself in both the movie and the book in slightly different ways, but basically the same way, where he becomes this light for all the patients to realize finally that they're not broken. Perhaps they have some mental issues that need to be worked through, whether that's through therapy or medication, but they're not broken. Yeah. And a lot of the men by the end of the story are able to move on voluntarily. And that's something that the book changes slightly, where Bromden in the book actually goes to the quote-unquote disturbed ward with McMurphy after the fight, which in the book happens slightly differently, but basically there's a fight between the orderlies, Bromden, and McMurphy, and they both get sent to disturbed, and they both get electric shock therapy, but Bromden is sent back first, and he takes on this role of giving McMurphy the legendary status that he thinks will give the other men sort of the final push to get themselves out of the hospital. And the only reason he doesn't leave before McMurphy comes back is because he thinks that Nurse Ratched is going to leverage McMurphy's return to, like, he sort of knows in advance that she's going to use him as a broken figure to show this is what happens to you if you buck the system. And in the movie, it's a little bit different where he waits for McMurphy to escape with him, but it's basically the same. And then, of course, it ends with McMurphy dying, which was so sad the first time that I read slash watched the story, but it does really make sense. Yeah. Because that means that Nurse Ratched then can't use him as the symbol of this broken man because he literally is broken by the lobotomy and by killing him then Bromden can continue to push this narrative of breaking free breaking away and you can be a fully formed person without the system right I think a great companion piece to this movie is Dead Poet Society where oh, interesting. where yeah so Robin Williams he comes in and basically changes the minds of these students. You know, mm -hmm. seize the day. That's the whole message of the whole dang movie. You seize the day. <laughs> yeah, right. And <laughs> and these students are, you know, liberated intellectually and also come mm -hmm. into you know, it's a coming of age story. They all, you know, come into their own as young men. Mm -hmm. But then there's a tragedy when a newly liberated student, when their oppressive father, you know, basically, you know, acting the same way that Nurse Ratched asked, says, no, you can't do this, you need to do this. 
in the in Dead Poet Society, it's like you can't be an actor; you're going to be a doctor, and that's right. that's your life, and you have no choice. And then that student commits suicide, and then Robin Williams is fired, and the kind of liberation, uh, the second liberation, the second coming, <laughs> um, is when at the final scene when Robin Williams comes back to the class and he gathers his things. And all the students get up on the desk, showing him that that the, his message of seizing the day that hasn't died, mm -hmm. that that it's now there. That right. that's kind of the symbolic uh, Robin Williams as essentially he doesn't die as a character, but he you know his journey has ended, but his message still lives on. That kind of the same thing happens here with yeah. with McMurphy comes in and is such this joyous rebellious force of nature that he changes all of his <laughs> students if you will right. for the better but of course it goes too far in one way leading to a death but his message lives on even though that even though that McMurphy has died his his road is in he, it's a very Christ-like figure in that way so yeah right. I think yeah both Deadpool Society this movie they have that same kind of I think responsible message about bucking the system where you that where you should you, you shouldn't conform that that you can it shouldn't define you. yeah it, yeah right it, yeah it shouldn't define you exactly so yeah I mean it's so very tragic but that that last scene when in the movie when he comes back and he's has been lobotomized and you know Chief Bromden Will Sampson's performance of just shaking him and saying oh, like yeah. oh like it heartbreaking and yeah no yeah i'm kind of at a loss for words well we can talk more about how it is so tragic that mac goes from i really like how you described him as a force of nature mm -hmm. and when he comes in and in, especially in the book it talks about how genuine his laugh is and how even though like i said in the first half of the book he is so clearly only looking out for himself. Mm -hmm. And by the time he comes to know these men, he's so close with them. And even though he ribs them a lot, you know, he makes fun of their disabilities in a lot of ways. You know that it's from a genuine place. Yeah. And he, he also brings on a lot of the, the poking on himself. And the way that Nurse Ratched tries to leverage that too, like she tries to manipulate the men to go against him in the with the gambling and especially in the book I think it's highlighted when she sort of shows them like hey look how much Max's bank account has gone up and he's won all of your cigarettes and he's just using you because he thinks he's smarter mm -hmm. and the patients sort of start to turn on him because she still has a pretty strong hold over them and then finally they realize like that's not who he is and he go they go back to realizing again especially after the fishing trip which is such a great moment like that's really what sets them free mentally in a lot of ways for the first time and it's just such a tragedy to see someone who took interest in all of those men individually and brought out their best moments in fact there's uh so something i wanted to talk about is when billy bibbit in the end of the movie slash book but you don't really hear it in the book you hear it in the movie his stutter goes away after nurse ratchet discovers him with 
candy mm-hmm. in the room, his stutter goes away because he's confident, finally, after being in the hospital for years and nothing has done anything to bolster his confidence until Mac comes in and again, like treats him like a normal person and someone who isn't defined by his quote unquote abnormality. Right. There's that great scene when Mac learns that most of the ward is in there voluntarily. And he's just like, Billy, you're a kid. You should be, he's like, he's like, you're no crazier than the average Joe out on the street. You should be in a convertible uh, you know, chasing, chasing birds, t- chasing bir- birds, yeah, <laughs> knee deep and yeah. Well, yeah. I, I'll stop there, but it, it, it's so genuine because you know Max, he's he's right. He's like right. these are people. Like th- there really is nothing r- wrong with them, and it, yeah. So continue. Sorry, I interrupted. No, no, that's exactly what I was going to say. It just makes it all the more tragic that he's the one who ends up having to sacrifice himself, and you know when. Billy dies like when he kills himself it's just so heartbreaking because Billy's the youngest one and he's the one he clearly doesn't have any mental issues other than the fact that his mother and nurse Ratched have become completely oppressive and have completely controlled him to the point where he can't even live without his mother's approval and that's an obvious example of of uh, authority figure getting drunk with power because mm-hmm. there is no reason why Nurse Ratched had to tell his mom about. Um, no, about she knew that that was the one thing that would get him to tell who had started the party. Right, and but she also knew that it was that she was walking a fine line there of saying of that could potentially break Bibbit. But she valued her authority more than yep. Bibbit's psyche. So her true colors kind of came out through there. So that kind of is that kind of side message of when you have this power and you feel threatened, sometimes when you get power drunk, you can cross that line that leads to some serious consequences. Right. And that's what sparks Mac's reaction of being of becoming so violent and ended up choking her out. Which then, again, is very symbolic, the whole idea that he takes away her voice by choking her. And there's a line in the book, I don't remember if it's in the movie, but Harding says, you know, now that you've introduced this spirit to the ward, what's to say that we're not going to do this again? Which has really taken, and you see Nurse Ratched flinch away from people uh, when they come toward her because she realizes that her status has been completely shattered Mm -hmm. and it's just again it's very symbolic it's even foreshadowed in the beginning of the book uh mac talks about how his uncle choked his aunt and took her voice away and he's kind of warns nurse ratchet not to push him because he knows that he can take her voice away by by physically overcoming her and that pushed nurse ratchet again like you're saying it pushed her into a corner to the point where she literally took a human and without consent performed a surgery that basically left him brain dead. Mm-hmm. Like that is so beyond powerful. It's disgusting. You know, it's really disgusting to see how sure Mac was maybe not the greatest 
upstanding civilian, but he didn't deserve to literally be left brain dead yeah. by a surgery that obviously he didn't consent to. Right. It's just so sickening to see that happen to him because she felt threatened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Milos Forman was born in Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. and he moved to the United States when uh, Czechoslovakia was coming under uh, Soviet rule. And that's kind of, you know, a good um, allegory for the film of, you know, the, his move to America mm -hmm. kind of represents that he, he was in search for a new cleansing spirit, if you will, like to, to renew, mm -hmm. to renew his life. When he was faced with this oppression, he fled and came in search of something more and he became a filmmaker and filmmaking kind of became his mm -hmm. uh McMurphy, in a way. That was kind of a corny message, but it applies. <laughs> well, it applies. And, you know, if anybody has watched Guava Island, which is oh, yeah. incredible, definitely look that it's short on movie Amazon up. Prime. It's on Amazon Prime. It's incredible. It's a, it's a, it's a tight 50 minutes. E yeah, definitely watch it. It has a very similar message. And what I want to talk about, because we sort of led up to the point where if society is threatened and if the people in power are threatened then they'll lash out and try to oppress those people who have become the face of the rebellion and the face of what people actually want mm -hmm. and how that lashing out can result in death and tragedy but it can also lead to those people becoming those legends. Right. And the legend becoming the idea that you can't kill. And that's sort of the idea with Guava Island as well. I don't want to spoil it because if you watch it, it's quite a piece of art. And I would say I probably like that movie better than this movie, but... What? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's hard to... Well, anyways. Anyway, it's the same idea in the end of Guava Island where if you try to kill or suppress the person who's become the face of the rebellion that can't necessarily be killed if that idea has been spread to everybody right and it'll eventually rise up again and continue to well up because people ultimately do not function well under oppression right and when you when you kill the face of a, of a rebellion sometimes that can only grow the power of the rebellion exactly and, and, yeah so yeah i think that's that wraps it up pretty tightly yeah but i mean we could we could have gone into like all the specifics of why the movie is so great but but i mean that's boring stuff but he, here it is bullet point bullet give it to me yeah. bullet point like great directing great cinematography great staging it's funny oh, yeah it's so funny it's funny it's dramatic it's well shot. I said great cinematography already, but I wanted to say, I wanted to specifically point out the uh, the boat trip scene. Yeah. Um, how, filming anything on a boat at sea is notoriously hard. There's a great documentary on the making of Jaws, which, mm. my goodness, that filming that movie was literal hell of, of the the logistics of filming on on a boat when everything's moving. There are other boats. Hey, well, in a popular opinion. That's a great movie. Of Ja? Whoa. Whoa. Get out of here. But something that's really impressive, there's that uh, shot where the boat is doing a 360, doing <laughs> right. donuts. So and so it's a one shot with the camera in there, and they go all the way around in a 360, which means that that boat 
was the only boat out there. Honestly, they couldn't bring any other boats. Because normally sure. when you're filming something, right, you go out with a boat, and then you on another boat, you film that boat. Right. Boat, boat, boat. I keep on saying boat. <laughs> but in order for that shot, they had to... They had to have just the actors and the DP. They had to go out into the middle of the ocean, and then they had to do that shot in 360, and it's just them. It's so impressive because you see the whole horizon. So there, there's no other boats. Get, there's no other coverage. So how did they do that? They just, the cameraman was at the end of the boat, and then they did a, they, I'm, saying, I'm saying they got that shot by actually doing it. Like the, a cameraman was at the end of the boat, and then they did a 360. Like there's no other boats right. around. Is what I'm saying. Yeah. So that that whole scene, that whole sequence, incredible. So it's fun. Such a funny. So funny. Yeah. So yeah, it has all the elements of a classic movie, which makes it classic. It's just a, across the board top tier oh, stuff. Yeah. And I think the book is so thematically rich and entertaining, and it also is just long enough to feel you know to feel momentous but it's short enough where it's like not a not an, a breezy read or an or an easy read but it's not it's not like a sit you're not just like slogging through this it's like i think the audiobook was 10 hours which is like a perfect amount of time mm -hmm. I, yeah so shout out to john c Riley who narrated yeah my uh the audiobook he he's great he did all the voices and it was so animated and it really sounded like a different person each time he was saying the lines of, of different characters so john c Riley, underrated actor where am i getting at this wrap it up okay is the book better than the movie what's your opinion i would say yes just because of the added layers that we don't get from the movie not by much I will say, not by much. Yeah. Both, I really both are four stars. Are you? I conceding? agree. Yeah, a hundred percent. Four out of four stars for both the movie and the book. I just enjoy having the minority perspective in the novel a little bit more, sure. and the background of his character I think is really interesting, especially because I have spent a lot of time in Washington, and he really brings the character of the Pacific Northwest mm. really well into the writing. And I just, it's a little bit lost in the movie, but you don't, you don't miss it necessarily. Um, but yeah, I highly recommend the book, highly recommend the movie, especially if you've never seen it. So that's where I'm going to leave it. Yeah, it's close for me too, but I can't, I, I, I can't say, I mean, it's a classic movie. I like the movie better by just a bit because mainly Jack Nicholson's performance. I mean, one of the defining. It's so fun to well, watch. One him. of the performances next to maybe Daniel Day Lewis and There Will Be Blood of like defining signature. Like that is like something you'll remember forever. Uh, just just listening to him, it's just so engaging. So right. um, that uh, along with the fact that it's you know a hundred and thirty minute movie, it feels. A lot shorter than that it's mm -hmm. every time I, I can watch sit down and watch it I can get something else new out of it well and it takes there's really nothing that is not in the novel that's in the movie right it takes the best pieces of the novel right and doesn't draw them out any longer and doesn't cut them shorter than they have to be mm -hmm. it just really takes the best pieces and gives them exactly the amount of time that they should have to bring the best things out into yeah. the movie. Yeah. Amen. I, I completely agree. It does what a good adaptation 
should do. It just take yeah, take exactly. the good stuff, condense the other stuff, but don't you know don't cut out too much as to to really hollow out. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, that Laura, brings us to the end of another episode. That brings episode. us another end. Wow, we are we are just we're new to this, but we're really coming into our own. We're having a fruitful discussion, and we talked a lot about sticking to the man in this episode. <laughs> you right. hear that, Trump? That's right. I'm getting political. Oh, better yeah. ease off the brakes on that Oh, one. no, no. I'm coming straight for you, Pence. What are you going to do? <laughs> Come at me. Listen to our podcast? Oh, no. You can't read. Uh, list, you, you can't, can't read. <laughs> no. no, that's true. Well, that yeah, that is actually we true. It's, it's proven. But um, that aside, go uh, check out the movie. You've already seen the movie, let's be honest. But go read the book. Uh, Definitely. And yeah, and coming up next week is another Jack Nicholson staple, The, the Shining. Shining. Ooh, we're getting into Kubrick. One of my favorites oh, yet again. Oh boy, another class back-to-back classics. Jack Nicholson classics. Jack Nicholson back-to-backs. Jack Nicholson back-to-back classics. Beast with two backs. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, ooh. That's great. All right, I think we should wrap it up. Uh, Wrap it up. Do we have an ending yet? Do we know how to wrap it up yet? We don't. Look us up on social media. Yes. Oh, Letterboxd. The app Letterboxd, you can see more of my film reviews. My handle is Danny G Reviews. My profile picture is of me water skiing. And we'll try to get an Instagram account up and running for this oh podcast. yeah by the, by the time you hear this it'll be up and up and running yeah we don't have it now but we're recording in the past you're hearing us in the past we're talking to the future whoa trippy man all right let's finish <laughs> all right i'm done <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm pretty much let's put throw on the towel all right thanks for listening and we'll see you next time